0: Welcome to Behavioral Health Today, a podcast brought to you by the Triad Network. This podcast is designed to share trending topics occurring within the world and our communities and bring them a behavioral and mental health perspective.
1: Welcome to Behavioral Health Today, a Triad production. I'm your host, Dr. Graham Taylor. My guest today on the show is Dr. Ravi Shah. Ravi is a Chief Innovation Officer and an Assistant Professor at Columbia University's Department of Psychiatry. He served as medical director for the Columbia Psychiatry Faculty Practice from 2017 to 2021. Ravi is a board-certified psychiatrist who sees adult patients for psychotherapy and psychopharmacology in New York City. Ravi completed his combined MD and MBA from the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine and the Wharton School and did his adult psychiatry residency at Columbia University serving as chief resident in his final year. Ravi has also had extensive experience in digital mental health, having worked with several venture capital-backed mental health startups. And today actually we're gonna be talking about digital mental health and managing psychopharmaceutical care in the treatment of depression. Ravi, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's really nice to have you here. You know, Ravi, as we start out today, I wanna to get into a couple of things, but set the precedence for us right here, kind of an understanding and the scope of depression in America today.
0: Sure. You know, depression in America has long been a problem, but I think more recently it's becoming identified as a problem and more um, widely accepted as a problem. So estimates range from about 10 to 20 percent lifetime prevalence. That means one out of every 10 to one out of every five people will have a depressive episode at some point in their life. That means everyone listening to this show knows somebody, many people actually, who have uh, faced depression in their lives. And we know with COVID that those numbers are just increasing. So the numbers I'm quoting are based on old data. This is a very difficult time for people in this country and really worldwide. And I I would just say that there's depression, huge problem. And there's a whole bunch of other common mental health conditions, mostly anxiety disorders, but others as well, which we are also seeing on the rise in the context of COVID, increased acceptance, willingness to talk and be honest about how people are doing.
1: You know, as we talk about depression and you've had extensive experience and with your background as a psychiatrist, this is kind of an interesting question. Why do people get depressed?
0: People get depressed for all sorts of reasons. So it it really depends. There are people who get depressed truly for no reason, meaning it comes out of the blue. Typically, those histories will be folks who have a strong family history of depression. We're pretty confident there's a strong, what we'll construe as like genetic or biologic component to their depression. They may end up being hospitalized. They tend to actually respond quite well to our treatment. And we know that people don't exist in a vacuum and that psychosocial stressors, which is a fancy way of saying the stuff that happens in life, plays a big role in whether or not people can have a depressive episode. And in fact, they've even done studies that show things like moving, getting promoted, getting fired, getting married, getting divorced, some of which you might've imagined at first glance sound like, quote-unquote, positive things in our lives. But huge changes or role transitions can precede and, yes, be triggers for depressive episodes. And we know that not only because we've done studies to show up, but also because the type of episode actually confers different layers of risk. So getting divorced, getting fired, loss of a loved one, loss of a child, those are some of the strongest predisposing factors that can cause a depression. But just to be clear, not everybody who has a depression has one of those kind of crystal clear, obvious reasons right before it.
1: Yeah. I think that's, I think it's a helpful thing to understand. There, there, there's a genetic component to it, like you're saying. And sometimes, you know, folks don't recognize that because they get raised in it. And all of a sudden they're experiencing some things in life where their day-to-day functioning is is hampered in some way or impaired in some way. And they're trying to figure this out. And there's other times when there's some circumstantial, you know, thing in life that they may not recognize the toll. There's that Subjective units of distress scale that you know we use quite a bit, where they assign distress units to different things, like you said, divorce or change of a do- job or the birth of a baby. And we think that sometimes even positive things can be stressful. We don't oftentimes recognize that it can set things off. So, being able to have some meaning behind the depression or maybe a loss, like you're describing, being a component to it. Well, you know, as with the, with the rise of mental illnesses in in, in America, we've also seen a rise in venture capital investing in mental health treatment options. And as I stated in the introduction, you completed both your medical school and your business school together. And I know that for-profit and venture capital companies reached out to you and you were involved with them for a while. Share with us your involvement with these various companies and the services that you see growing within online mental health treatments.
0: Sure babe. So I'll be honest with you. When I did these combined degrees, I had no idea that there would be this explosion of for-profit interest in the behavioral health space. Historically, mental health has been sort of relegated to being the least financially interesting of all specialties of medicine. And that's because it's usually about spending time with people. And that becomes very difficult for, for companies to sort of scale and make big profits. But things have changed. And the big thing that has changed is that people have realized that mental health is a humongous problem that is woefully under-treated and under-managed in this country. And now that there's growing acceptance that people want treatment, the question is, how do we get it to them? Yes. And I think the venture capital and technology companies are saying, wait a minute, can we bring technology to a field that historically has been focused on one-on-one, sit on a couch, in person for someone else to help scale the ability of people to get good treatment? Is that old style of treatment that we're all, I was trained in, you were probably trained in, and that we all see on TV, is it the only way to get better from a mental health perspective? And I think people are starting to say, no, there probably are some other ways. And that's what you're seeing is this kind of huge explosion of companies who are trying all sorts of new things. As for my involvement, I've taken on a bunch of different roles. I've been a medical director, a co-founder, early advisor, even investor in a whole bunch of different mental health companies. Some of which focus on therapy, medication management, different populations, alcohol use disorder. And I think it's a very exciting time because people are trying new things and seeing really what works for people out there. The good news is that if the people who are the sort of customers of these companies, if they're not liking the products, then the companies will need to adjust or they're going to close down. And so, there is, I think, a nice alignment from that perspective that people really need to be getting better for these companies to succeed.
1: What do you see these companies providing that is meeting the growing need of mental illness and the accessibility and the scope of what we're experiencing? How is it that these venture companies are planning intentionally to meet this larger and growing need?
0: Yeah, At the simplest level, you know, these companies started out as basically just being telehealth, which Mm -hmm. today doesn't sound very exciting or interesting since everybody's working on Zoom or or other types of teleconferencing. But at the time they started, it was a pretty novel approach, and people weren't even sure if you could do exclusively mental health treatment by telehealth. I'll tell you at Columbia, over the last two years, the most in-person visits we've had in two years has been uh, under 10%. And now with the Omicron wave, we're back at 99% video. Mm. There's a couple of people here and there, but for the most part, patients are voting with their feet. They don't want to travel 30 and 40 minutes for a 30 and 40 minute appointment and then go back the other direction. Of course it started as a safety issue, but I think the convenience factor and the fact that people have gotten really accustomed and comfortable with video technology has made a huge difference. But that I think we have to acknowledge is, kind of tip of the iceberg when it comes to innovation, just mm-hmm. video conferencing. I think some of the other things you're seeing that these companies do is they provide really a lot more access to treatment teams. That's usually in the form of either texting or patient portal, what we call in a fancy language, asynchronous messaging. But it's something, I mean, basically that's texting. That's what we're all doing all the yeah. time. And historically mental health providers didn't allow you to do that kind of thing. You had to leave a message on their voicemail and they would get that's back right. to you in one to two business days and Nowadays, patients are saying, that's just not going to work for me, I I need more. The other thing you're seeing is that because they're using venture capital to subsidize their growth, they're offering things at better rates, and so they're increasing access by virtue of bringing the cost down. Remember that 50% of psychiatrists accept exactly zero insurance, forget Medicare, that means they're not accepting even commercial insurance. And so when you have a situation where you've got such a shortage of mental health specialists in this country, and then on top of that, at least half are opting out of the system, Mm -hmm. um, it makes it a really hard access problem. And I think that's one of the easier things that these startups are actually addressing. One way they're doing that is by having scale. So once they get a whole bunch of providers together, they can come back to the insurance company and say, hey, you need to give a reasonable rate to do this kind of work. And the insurance companies are doing that. And what that means for the patient ultimately is really good news. That means that they're able to access care in network or at cop fees that are much lower than what they were getting with um, sort of the therapists or psychiatrists down the street.
1: We'll be right back after word from our sponsor. Continuing education is both a requirement and a learning opportunity, but finding the right CE provider can be challenging. AATBS, a triad company, offers continuing education for psychologists, social workers marriage and family therapists, counselors, and behavior analysts. CE courses are available both individually and as part of our new All Access Pass. All Access Pass provides a library of over 250 unique courses. That's more than 800 hours of CEs, with new courses being added every month. As a special offer, Behavioral Health Today listeners can save 15% on CE purchases. Visit us at aatbs.com bht and enter promo code bht15 during checkout. That's aatbs.com slash B-H-T. Check out our library and check off your CE requirements today. Yeah, I really appreciate that kind of that framework. I, I know as we're talking about accessibility, I know that you have an interest in our conversation recently in making access to care available to those who are in need. And one of the ways that you've addressed this is through the creation of your app which I want to kind of shift in and talk a little bit about now, which provides a platform and treatment algorithm to help address depression. If you would walk us through kind of your thinking and its creation and share with us its features and its use.
0: Absolutely. So thanks for asking. So we built an app called the Columbia Psychiatry Pathways app. And right now it has a module on an algorithm for treating depression. And our hope is to actually expand it to multiple conditions over time with the goal of really just, giving, democratizing access to leading specialty knowledge. So that's a very fancy way of saying the question would be that, why did we build this? You know, for what purpose? Well, let me start by telling you some numbers that I think are kind of eye-opening. We've got 40 million plus Americans on some type of psychiatric medication. 80% of those meds are written by non-mental health specialists, generally primary care doctors. Most of these scripts are antidepressants or antidepressant-like meds. When they do studies of the primary care doctors treating depression in the primary care setting, only 13% of that care meets the criteria for what we would call minimally adequate. Mm -hmm. So what that means is we've got 40 million Americans on meds and most of those people are not being treated properly. My goal is not to blame anybody. It's actually really a specialty knowledge to treat depression. And while the primary care doctors are doing their best, it takes work and they need help and they need more training than what has been traditionally provided. So what I did is got together with one of our senior faculty members, John Mann. And when I say this is specialty knowledge, I don't mean it's a psychiatrist's kind of opinion about how to treat depression. John Mann wrote the New England Journal review article, The Medical Management of Depression. So what we wanted to do was take a leading world expert view on how to treat depression and put it into five simple steps and boil it down to seven generic medications that could treat about 80 to 90% of outpatient depression management most depression is treated in the outpatient setting. So we built this really as a clinician tool so that psychiatrists, primary care doctors, nurse practitioners could use it to sort of see like if their patients are getting better, what's going on, what are their options, how would an expert think through it? And, and we got really great feedback from primary care doctors that this is really helpful. It helps them kind of manage patients. It gave them confidence in that what they were doing made sense. And then when they were stuck, it gave them some other options or other ways to think about it. What we've started to learn is that this isn't really just a tool for the prescribers. This could be a tool for a therapist who's got a patient who's on medication and they feel like the patient's not really doing very well. They're seeing the patient every week. They're seeing their psychiatrist, primary care doctor every quarter, or every six months. Yeah. And the therapist has kind of a gut, but they need some kind of tool to help them sort through like what else could be out there for that patient. And in fact, we wrote the algorithm in such a way that it's so easy to read and easy to follow. And the questions asked are really something that anybody could answer. That I really believe, and, and Dr. Mann is a strong believer in this, that this is meant to be a tool to empower patients themselves.
1: That's what I'm so hearing you, too, yeah.
0: If you are one of the 40 million Americans on an antidepressant, or I should say one of the 87% of those 40 million Americans whose depression isn't really being treated in the best way, then you can check out this application in, you know in the app store today. And go through and click the answers and start to see what are your other options. And you can bring that back to mm-hmm. your well-meaning primary care doctor or psychiatrist yes. and say, hey, this is what a leading expert's view of how to treat depression is. I'm not really doing as well as I think I could be. What do you think? And that's a way for, to empower patients to come back to their doctors and get really the best care they can.
1: That's really good. I appreciate all the levels of which this can be used for those psychiatrists who want to refer to it but the number of prescribing practitioners that are non-psychiatrists is pretty significant. And being able to have them with the latest and greatest data to be able to kind of walk through these things to help them feel like they're competent in the prescribing process. And also for the patient to kind of have something to reference as well. Talk about how a patient might reference this and and what are they going to see when they go on the app?
0: Sure. So if you download the app, you're basically going to be asked a series of questions that, like I said, any patient will be able to answer for themselves. So it'll ask, for example, are you initial, like you've never, you're not on an antidepressant at all, but you think you're depressed or a follow-up, you're already on meds or some type of treatment and it's not working. Then you'll go based on what you pick from there. It'll sort of walk you through assessing, you know, suicidality, Screening for bipolar disorder, making sure that we've got the diagnosis sort of right, it's going to ask you the questions. So you don't need to know if I you like have bipolar disorder. You just answer the questions and it's going to tell you essentially what the answers to your questions mean in real time. But assuming suicidal risk isn't an issue and bipolar disorder is not an issue, it's going to go straight into, okay what's the severity of this depression, which we're going to use evidence-based, measurement-based scale to figure out. So we're going to put a number to your depression. That's really important because if we don't put a number to it, we're not able to track how much better you're getting. That's right. I always tell patients, these scales are imperfect. I don't expect them to replace your subjective feeling of this world. Ultimately, in mental health, that's what we're after is improving people's subjective experience of life. And sometimes our subjective experience or our memory is, you know, somewhat shaded by what happened yesterday or an hour Mm -hmm. ago. And so the scales help kind of normalize that data a little bit. And so I like to use both. I want you to feel better inside, but I do want to track and monitor the numbers to prove it to both of us, that whatever treatment plan we've got going is working for you.
1: And you guys have a calculator for the PHQ-9 and for the Columbia Depression Scale, don't you, in this app? You
0: you got it so you don't need to know your number on the scale if you don't know that they'll have a little calculator button you'll click that it'll open up and it'll ask you very clean and clear questions which you'll answer and then it'll calculate for you what that number is it'll then tell you what the depression severity is and depending on the depression severity we're going to recommend pathways of what medications we would start and we get really clear about how we titrate meds like which med we pick for what reason and then how we titrate that med, meaning yeah. how many days on which dose before you go up to the next dose, et cetera. And then we're gonna ask, okay, once you're on a dose, how have you been doing over the last two weeks? Okay. And you, again, you're gonna have choices. You can either fill out the PHQ-9 or you can use a one question Columbia Depression Scale, and that's gonna help assess how are you doing? Are we getting a little bit better, not better at all, or we're all the way better, we're back to normal. And depending on which of those we're on, it's going to give you different advice about how long to either stay on meds, whether we should change the dose, increase, or whether we should switch and move on to the next step. But it'll walk you through step by step
1: by step. I love that piece of it. They don't have to be doing or having a whole lot of experience, or even be able to kind of gauge or number their depression. It's why I went on the app and took a look through some of the things that you had. It's 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 very straightforward and it's very comprehensive and it's very thorough. You have it. You have the various medications and the data behind them. And it's it's really significant. How about that patient who comes in and is saying, I, I know I'm depressed and my scale tells me so, but I may not be ready or maybe my number's not high enough for there to be medication started. What do I do then?
0: Great question. So for people with mild to moderate depression, right? Which again, we actually anchor to a score on the PHQ-9. The science says that it is reasonable to offer psychotherapy or medications to start. So if they can get access to good psychotherapy, great. And if that's what they prefer, I'm a big believer in, you know, going with patient preference. So that's all fine and well. And we also know from the science, and this is why it's important to get someone like Dr. Mann kind of view on this. The science also shows that if people aren't getting better in their therapy after eight to 16 weeks, it's time to try medication. That's right. And that's just what the science shows. You can still choose not to, like you still have free choice, but sure. our job is to tell you what the research tells us uh, yeah. is most likely to help you.
1: Can we talk just a little bit about that point? So this idea that, you know, folks might, you know, with maybe a mild to moderate depression and say, you know what, I want to hit the pause button on the medication for right now and see what that psychotherapy might be helpful with, 16, 18 weeks or so. I, I'm feeling some better, but I'm not feeling at a level where I think I could be, or maybe me and my, you know, practitioner are believing I could be, yeah. then you're saying we might want to consider medication at that point. What kind of of thoughts do you have as you're assessing somebody not getting better? And what are you seeing in their life occurring that you know could be bettered with the medication being added to the treatment that they're receiving?
0: I'll I'll tell you one of my pearls. When I get a referral from a psychotherapist to see a patient for medication, it is extremely rare that we will not suggest medications in that case. Why do I say that? Because therapists are trained and they spend 80, 90% of their time with patients using no medications. That's their whole lens. That's their oh, whole world sure. professionally. If your therapist is saying, it's time to consider meds, keep in mind that they're not saying that to most of their clients, most likely. It's pretty unusual. And they're probably telling you for a reason because they have clinical experience and they know when talk therapy is working and it's getting you where you need to go. And they also know when it's not. Yes. So I think it's a really powerful tool to be working with a good therapist and a trusted therapist and to kind of listen to their advice because they've seen people on both sides, both with yeah. meds and without meds. And they've seen people get better with meds. And they've seen meds you know, used in a way that they don't think is sort of necessarily helpful. So I think that's one really good tip. But the other part of your question is, how do we you know know what could be better? And I would say that's where we come back to this measurement-based care thing. Mm-hmm. So filling out the scale becomes really critical there. When you're operating really on the margins, people who are kind of mildly depressed, they're kind of functioning, they're doing okay. I think you have to be very thoughtful about it before you sort of just jump into to going for mm-hmm. meds. We know that the data is much more compelling for people with moderate to severe depression. For those folks, medications are really recommended. And the difference, meaning the benefit they get is much larger. Now remember, whenever anybody's more sick, they get more room to get better. Right. So that makes sense from a research perspective that you're always going to see that. But I think in the in that softer zone of mild depression, yes, it's good to start with very reasonable start with psychotherapy first. Keep measuring the scale. And then you have to think about with your practitioner whether it makes sense to do a trial med. The other thing I always say about trial of meds is it's just a trial. If it doesn't work for you and you don't have measurable benefit on the scale Mm. or you have side effects that are intolerable, then just stop it. Yes. So sometimes I tell people, we don't know how much better you can be. And if you want to give it a try, let's do it. But let's hold both of ourselves accountable Mm. to measuring the improvement and being confident that the benefits of this medicine, i.e. that you're getting more better than you are getting any problems from it. And that becomes another helpful paradigm of how to look at it.
1: Yeah. It's not a permanent thing and, and we can always come off it, but it can be worth a try. You know, it's interesting. I, I work with a couple of psychiatrists very closely and I grew up professionally in a medical center and, and had great relationships with my psychiatric colleagues and being able to watch someone's improvement on medication. When they're making improvements in psychotherapy, it's important and it's good. And you're seeing that, but you just know that there's something that hasn't quite gotten to the place where it can. And I think when folks are depressed, it doesn't happen overnight. It, it, it happens over a period of time. And there's an experience of kind of getting used to living in a depressed world. So you may not always know it when you're in it, kind of the forest for the trees idea. But yeah. then when people begin on medications and we as you know clinicians, let's say non-prescribing clinicians like myself as a psychologist, I'm able to say, You know, I know and I believe your life could be better given some of the things that I see in terms of your strengths, potentials, and the things you're engaged with and the people in your life that you have access to. But still, there's this experience that's under this depressive kind of blanket here that's really hard. And they may not see it quite the way that we might see it on the outside, even as we treat them. Or maybe their family members are noticing, you know, some things as well. Mm -hmm. But when people get on medication in necessary ways, they begin to say, wow, little did I know that this chemical imbalance could be so changed and bring such a quality back to my life that I, that I hadn't experienced. It's, it's pretty noteworthy, isn't it?
0: You got it. You said it very well.
1: Yeah. As you're talking about uh, these patients being able to use it as well, what kind of feedback are you hearing patients say that in terms of their accessibility to it, to be involved in their own self-care? What are you hearing? To be honest, we haven't
0: marketed it to patients to date. We launched just a couple of months ago and are sort of just getting our feet wet. The feedback we've gotten in the app store is mostly from clinicians who find it extremely helpful. But I think I'm very eager to see in 2022, you know, as we move along the journey, not just of COVID, but the rise of digital healthcare and patient empowerment, you know, patients use Google, WebMD. I think there's a stat that 90% of all healthcare searches start with a Google search, meaning patients don't look for a doctor. They look up the symptoms or the issues they're having first. And then they'll end up looking for a doctor. Yeah. So I really think this is going to be part of that larger trend and give patients the opportunity to sort of think about their treatment independently and then bring that to clinician.
1: Really good. You know, I know we're kind of winding down just a couple minutes here, but you referenced this idea of these pearls. And I'd, I'd like just to get from your experience and your expertise and your background, any other clinical pearls that you have regarding those maybe going through depression and how you'd like to, to understand it and maybe some hope around that.
0: Let me start with something I tell patients. The most important thing to understand about depression for patients, in my opinion, is the following. Hopelessness is, in my opinion, by definition, a delusion. It's a trick that your mind is playing on you. Mm. We construe it as a symptom of depression, but I think that's, you know, it just feels like telling someone like they have a fever. What I'm trying to help people understand with that comment is You might feel hopeless, and I can empathize or think about that with you. But it's important for me to help you understand that that's a feeling you're having. Really good. That is 100% treatable. So, whether people are thinking about suicide or they just feel trapped or hopeless, these are the kinds of phrases that we use, feeling that they wish they wouldn't wake up. That's all a part of this syndrome, and it is the most treatable part. And there's all sorts of evidence that, that, you know, plays this out. You know, another good example of this is when you survey people in the general population, would they rather if they got in a car accident, be a quadriplegic or die? They almost universally, you know, the vast majority said they'd rather be dead. And then when you survey people who are actually had a car accident and became a quadriplegic, they almost all say that they're glad they're alive and that they actually have a, a happy life. Yeah. So sometimes our minds aren't capable of of, of Understanding what's ahead. And depression is that cloud that makes Mm -hmm. it difficult for us to see that. That's, I think, the most important pearl I would want for patients to kind of who might be suffering from depression to be thinking about it. I guess the related thing, because I did build this app about PsychoPharm and meds, is to say, I believe it when the research says or people say, you know, the meds didn't work for me. And I would say, you know, the truth is most likely the stats show us, the research shows that you probably weren't treated adequately or in the way that we think is the best way. And that's why we built this thing. So I would say, you know, your experience is real. It definitely happened. And empower yourself with knowledge. Get into a good treatment with a good provider who's willing to listen and work with you. And, you know, check out this app. See what you can see how much better you can really feel. Sometimes these are experiments of one. We like to say not to say that the patient is a guinea pig. We have all sorts of great safety data. These meds are all FDA approved. These are all generics. That means they've all been around at least twenty years. You know these are not new meds that we're suggesting. We have plenty of science. But when you're figuring out what works for you as an individual, there is a little bit of trial and error. And I think that that can be daunting for folks who are feeling emotionally unwell. But my goal in this sort of session today is to sort of offer hope to say that, you know, we, we really think the vast majority of people with depression can get much, much better than probably they're already, they're doing even now.
1: And therein lies the hope. I I love those pearls. And I think it's helping folks when they're in that cloud or in that state, asking them almost to suspend all disbelief that things can get better here and they will. Let's just give it some time. Let's try some things and put them into place and let's watch. It's very treatable, isn't it? It is indeed. Yeah, it is indeed. And people can get the quality of their lives back. Hey, as we are coming in here, I would love for our listeners to find out a little bit more about this app, about how to research a little bit more about you. Can you give us some resources that our listeners can follow up with?
0: Sure. So our app, you can download in the App Store or Google Play Store today. If you want to just learn more about it, you can go to columbiapsychiatry.org backslash pathways. Again, that's columbiapsychiatry.org backslash pathways. It's called Columbia Psychiatry Pathways. Very
1: good, very good. Um, and,
0: our, and, and the reason for that is we have you know one solid pathway now and, and our, our goal is to really do um, much, much more because it turns out what's true in depression is true across almost all of our mental health conditions, which is that we actually have lots of evidence of great treatments that work, but what we don't have is great dissemination of those best practices. And so we've got to make it easier for clinicians and patients uh, across the country, and indeed the world, to know you know what the evidence really shows is the best way to treat mental health in America.
1: Really good, really good. Well, Ravi, it's been great to have you on the show today, and thanks so much for what you're sharing with us in the app. And I encourage our listeners to go check it out. It's a great site. The app is uh, got a little video on how the what the app reveals, and it's uh, kind of a very good educational way to to kind of understand what's all provided in that. So, it's been great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for being with us today.
0: Thank you so much for having me, really appreciate it.
1: Great to have you here. I also wanna thank you, our listeners for joining Ravi and me today. We always appreciate you being with us. I wanna remind you that this episode, its resources and all of our other shows can be found on our webpage at triadhq.com BHT. So go check out our webpage, triadhq.com BHT and explore our archives of podcasts and resource materials. Thanks again for being with us on the show. I look forward to having you with us next time on Behavioral Health Today.
0: We appreciate all the support from our community. And if you like our show, one of the best ways you can support it is by giving us a five-star rating and leaving a review. Behavioral Health Today is a podcast part of the Tribe Network, all rights reserved.